Thanks for joining us today at the Vine Church. We're one church with two locations and reaching around the world with the help of our online service. We exist to connect the world to Jesus Christ. If you'd like to partner with us in doing that, you can share this service with others and give by clicking the link below. For now, hear your heart for some incredible worship and an inspiring message. This is the day that you have made. Whatever comes, I won't complain. For all my hope is in your name. And now you enjoy always my praise. I give thanks for all you have done. And I will sing of your mercy and your love. Your love is unfailing. Lord, I am grateful. When I was down, you brought me out. And here I stand on solid ground. Here I stand. You are my God. Your faithfulness, my solid rock. Lift your voice, church. I give thanks for all you have done, and I will sing of your mercy and your love. Your love is unfailing, Lord. I am grateful. I give thanks for all you have done. I won't forget all the bad. You have won your love is unfailing Lord I am grateful yes. Yes. And as we lift our hands the heavens open heavens open so let our
church you good 
It's good to be with you guys this morning as we continue a series that we started at the beginning of summer called On Your Mark, where we're preparing for our race of faith and our race of life by going through the Gospel of Mark. It's a book of the Bible that describes in detail um, Jesus's life, his death, his resurrection, and it moves at a very fast pace. And so it's a great summer read for us. Uh, Some of you have participated in our church-wide reading together by taking your bookmark home, going over those readings, checking your mark. And some of you have even posted some uh, photos of your reading and some of your revelation on uh, social media, and we're grateful for that. It's been great to uh, be with you throughout the summer as we've been uh, reading together through the Gospel of Mark. And there's a lot of stuff that we can do, and we've discovered over the course of the summer, uh, that we can do to prepare for the race of faith. But today we're going to talk about what is most foundational and most important when it comes to our faith. And so we're going to do that and get to that in just a second. But I want you to think about um, maybe some of life's earliest lessons that you learn. Uh, they could be some of life's lessons, like big picture lessons. I remember my father, he told me that anytime I answered somebody that was older than me, I had to say, yes, sir, or no, sir, yes, ma'am, or no, ma'am. Anybody else uh, get taught that? Uh, yeah, okay. Everybody else, you need Jesus. All right. So no, I'm just kidding. You know, so um, that's one lesson, you know, that we had in life. You know, go back to academics. I mean, everything was built on um, three things, or, or six things, I guess, ABCs and one, two, threes. Everything's kind of built on that academically. And so if you don't get the alphabet down, you're going to have a really hard time with words. You're going to have a really hard time with writing, reading, and speaking. And so, you know, when you go back to, to training children and how to speak, you go back to those 26 letters of our alphabet. So hard to get that that we have to come up with a song that we sing, right, to get that. And then when it comes to the one, two, threes, um, you know, we, we come back to everything kind of built around that when it comes to mathematics. And we had to come back to that first problem that you had to solve. What is one plus one? Four. Yeah, if you go to Georgia, you know, I mean, it's that, you know, so it's like, it goes back to just basic math, basic math, and everything else is built around that. So it's academics and athletics. Um, I grew up uh, as, a, as a kid that didn't like baseball because it was a slow sport for me. But my oldest son, he loves baseball. And I was his assistant coach when he was four, and he wanted to play baseball for the first time. And so we had to figure out how to teach baseball to a bunch of four-year-olds. And so how do you get them to throw a ball? Well, we had this, this three-step process. It was glove, toe, throw. If you could remember those three things, you got it. Glove, toe, throw, and it didn't work. But anyway, I mean, you know, so like, that's what we would try to do. And then I did something as a, as a coach of four-year-olds that I never thought I would do as a graduate of the University of Georgia, and that was the gator chop. Because how do you teach kids to field grounders? Did I get an amen out of that? Anyway, yeah, so like, how do you field grounders? You do the gator chop right here, right here. Glove and your hand cover the ball, Right. It goes back to that, and everything else is built off of those foundational things. Um, My oldest daughter, she does ballet. In fact, she does it at a level where she's kind of going part-time school next year as a ninth grader, and she's almost like full-time doing a ballet conservatory. For those of you that are older like me, you remember that show, Fame? It's kind of like what she's doing, but it's just with ballet. And so I was like, ballet can't be that hard that you got to go three extra hours a day to learn ballet. And she was like, go to first position, Dad. And I was like, it's this one, right? And she was like, yeah, but you're horrible. You know, she was like working with me 30 minutes. I'm sweating. I was like, this is horrible, you know? And I'm like, ballet's out the window for me. I'm never doing that, you know? So, you know, so, but it goes back to first position, ballet, first position. You can go back to everything that we do and it's built on some foundation or some building block before that. And we can never graduate from that because if we lose sight of that and then we've lost sight 
of everything. And the same is true of our faith. There are foundational aspects of our faith, building blocks to our faith that we can never graduate from or, or get past. We've got to continually have awareness of that it comes back to those foundational things. I remember growing up in church because my parents took us to church every week. Unless we were out of town or, on, um, or sick, we were in church. And, and I remember one of my Sunday school teachers when I was really young um, saying that he would give $10 to the first person that memorized the Beatitudes. And so for the first time in my life, I, I wanted to memorize the Bible. You know, I wanted to remember those Beatitudes. If you're not familiar with the Beatitudes, Jesus kind of introduces this in the most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And he says a bunch of blessed statements. Blessed are you if you're poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he goes down and he has 10. And, and I remember walking in that next Sunday and I was the first one and I got that $10. I couldn't recite them all to you now. I could probably do well on a fill in the blank test. But, um, but I had them then. Like I was motivated. That was one of the first things that I learned in faith. I remember my children's pastor when I was in third grade, he started talking about tithing. Um, you've heard that word tithe because Pedro got up and he said, hey, we're going to receive an offering of our tithes and our offerings. And, and I remember my children's pastor very vividly saying that tithe means literally 10%. It's one-tenth. It's not 2.6%, which is what most Americans think the tithe means, but um, some of you will get that later. Um, it, it's one-tenth. And, and he said that, hey, we're to bring one-tenth of everything that we earn back to God. And, um, and if we do, then God will be faithful, as he says in Malachi 3.10, to open up the windows of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you can't contain it. And I remember being a third grader going, man, I don't make any money, but if I do, I want to give back 10%, so God will open up the windows of heaven and pour out so much blessing that I can't contain it. And I get home, and my parents were like, hey, um, guess what? Going into school, we want to give you money for making um, straight A's. And so you get six grades, and if you make six A's, you're going to get six dollars. And so I did that. I got straight A's the entire year. My parents were like, we're not doing that again in fourth grade. You know, you're not going to do that. <laughs> so it was a bad deal over them. But every Christmas and birthday where I got money, when I got that academic money, I gave back 10%. I have been since I was in third grade. And I didn't know it then because I was just thinking, man, God's going to open up the windows of heaven, pour out so much blessing. I can't contain it. That, that built upon that is now where I understand that everything that I have, everything that you have, everything that we have, it's just a gift from God. And we're called to manage it for his care. But everything comes back to these foundational moments. And what we're going to see from Jesus today is that if you were to take just one thing out of this whole series, if you were to take one thing out of the entire Bible, one thing out of the Jewish faith, one thing out of Christianity, one thing, if you were to take just one thing out of it, what would it be? And we're going to see that today. And it's going to be found in Mark chapter 12. So if you brought your Bibles or you've got a Bible app, maybe you want to go there. And what we're going to see today is this thing called the Shema. Everybody say Shema. Shema, Shema is a Hebrew word, and that's a language that Jesus spoke. Um, and Jesus um, answers a question with the introduction of a passage of Scripture. That word Shema, when you translate it into English, can mean hear or and obey. Hear and or obey. But it's also the first word that is used in a verse of the Bible from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy that captures the entire verse that he's quoting. So when you go back to the Jewish faith, if you quoted the first chapter of a book of the Bible, it was expected that everybody would know what comes after it. So often you'll find Jesus quote one verse, and he's not just quoting that specific verse, he's actually quoting the entire chapter that follows it. 
And it was expected that people would know that. So when the word Shema is used, it's not just the literal translated hear or obey. It's also the entire verse that he is quoting. And the Shema is something that good Jewish people would have um, taught their children the moment their kids could learn to speak. And so the moment, you know, a child moved from uh, goo-goo and gaga, and they start to form that first word, like Braden's word, first word was ball. What a great, I mean, what else do you want from your firstborn son, right? You know, ball. And uh, as, soon as, as soon as they could speak, they'd start teaching them to recite the Shema, you know? And in today's culture, when our kids learn to talk, we like to teach them cool slang terms because then they sound cool when, when adults talk to them. Or, or we'll brainwash them for our favorite college team. So we taught all our kids to call the dog before they could speak anything else. They were saying, go dog, sick them, woof, 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 you know? So that's what we'll do. But back then they would teach them the Shema and they still are teaching them the Shema. And, and a good faithful Jewish person would recite the Shema at least three times a day, sometimes up to seven. There's one time a rabbi who's very famous in Judaism, a rabbi who, when he got married on his wedding night, he took time out of the wedding celebration to say the Shema. His disciples said, hey, why would you say the Shema on your wedding night? You get an exemption policy. And he said, I never want a moment apart from my Lord. It's powerful. This is the foundational aspect of our faith. And it's found in Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 28. When Mark records that one of the scribes, that was a, a professional um, uh, lawyer, if you, I mean, it was a, a lawyer, professional uh, uh, scribe of the law, someone who would actually take old copies of the law and make new copies of the law. Um, you've heard the phrase jot and tittle. That's a Hebrew expression that goes back to their language where there were jots and there were tittles to the language and they had to make sure all of those were exact. They had somebody over their shoulder making sure that they were copying it and transcribing it correctly. So a scribe of the law, somebody whose whole profession in life is to acquaint and transcribe the law, comes to Jesus. He hears them disputing with one another. That's Jesus and some religious leaders, Sadducees and Pharisees. And he asked him, that's Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important one is Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind and all of your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice that the scribe never asked for the second most important law, did he? Jesus gives him the second. And then the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So here you got this lawyer. He's an expert in the law because he transcribes the law for a living. He writes it down and that's all he does. I mean, I don't know if you think your job is monotonous. 
This is a pretty monotonous job. He's very well acquainted with all of the law. And when we say all of the law, we're not just talking about 613 commandments that are found in the Old Testament faith. We're talking about the pages of Scripture from, from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the Old Testament. This guy would copy and transcribe it. That was what they believed to be the law. So he was a scribe of that law, among other things that he would do related to the Jewish faith. And he hears Jesus having a very high theological conversation with some people. That's way beyond like, what is the most important command that we should be obeying? They're curious because of the way things work back then. And maybe even people curious now. So if you get married on earth and let's say your spouse dies, Jesus, and then a person gets remarried um, and then that spouse dies and then they get remarried again, like in heaven, who are they married to? Okay, that's... That's pretty high level thinking, well beyond like foundational kind of elementary type teachings that you teach kids and, you know, kids do. Would you agree? Yes. So Jesus is having a conversation and, and he answered them well, so well that here this expert in law comes and he asked what we would say is like, hey, whoa, 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 you, should be, you should be beyond that. And he comes back to and he says, hey, of all the commandments, 613, what's the most important one? What's the most important one? And he should have remembered. He shouldn't have asked the question. And many of us, when it comes to this race of faith, we, don't, we shouldn't have to ask the question. But we get so distracted with all of the things that we do when it comes to faith that we forget that all of it comes back to one thing. And Jesus reminds him of the one thing, and he reminds us all of the one thing. And it reminds us that if you were to take every other week out of the series, or you were to pick one of the weeks, pick this week, Hold on to this week. And he starts off by saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He doesn't start off by saying, Love the Lord your God. That's the commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the reason that he started there and not, Hey, you should love God, is because he wanted to remind them that in order to love God, you must be loved by God and that God loves you, and that God wants a covenant relationship with you. That was the exact verbiage that reminded people that what this whole thing of faith was about was a covenant relationship with God, where our Creator desires a personal relationship with us. And we do it in a covenant relationship where we say, okay, here's the agreement. You'll be our God, we'll be your people. And that was the covenant that God made with Abraham, Father Abraham, who had many sons, that guy. In Genesis, the first book of the Bible, at the very beginning of time, where God said, hey, I want to be your God, and I want you and yours to be my people. We'll enter into a covenant. It's kind of like a contract. But in modern days, a contract is between two equal parties where one person provides a service, another person provides payment. In those days, a contract could only be initiated by a greater party to a lesser party. And in case you were wondering, God's the greater party, we're the lesser party. Just in case there was any confusion on that. And so what God says is that I want to, and I've created you for a personal relationship, 
And because I'm the greater party, I will initiate this relationship. And you see that throughout the pages of the Old Testament, and then you see that fulfilled in Jesus in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it started with Adam and Eve, first two created human beings. They rebel against God, and they say, okay, hey, personal great relationship, great, but we're going to choose to do our thing. And then they realize they did their own thing, and they have shame, so they cover themselves up with the fig leaves that they can gather, and they cover them, their nakedness and their shame up. And God says, hey, you're, you're covering your attempt to come back in a relationship with me. It's not satisfactory. It doesn't, it doesn't fulfill the, the necessary sacrifice that needs to happen. So God provides a substitute covering for them. And he does this substitutionary thing and through the entire Old Testament. And then you get to Jesus who says, hey, the most important um, thing that we can remember is that God desires a covenant relationship with us. And then you see with his death and his resurrection that God provides a substitute covering for our sin and for the entire world's sin, not just those that come up with the 613 commandments of the Old Testament. God initiates that love. And in order for us, to be able to live out our faith that comes back to loving God, loving others, loving ourselves, we have to first receive the love that God has for us. The Bible says that we can't love unless we've first been loved. We can't love unless we've first been loved. Maybe that's why when it comes to kids in church and maybe your experience, you grew up and they wanted you to get that concept, so they came up with a couple of songs to help you out because for some reason kids remember songs better than they do just quoting scripture. And so you hear this song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. If you know it, come on. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or this one, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, Rhett. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Like some of the first foundational things we learn is that God loves us. That God loves us. And in order for us to carry out what this race of life and race of faith is all about, we've got to get that. And when we get it and when we trust it, the Bible uses the word believe or faith. When we get it and when we trust it, then there's this thing that is unlocked in us where we have the ability to reciprocate God's love and to reflect that in the way that we love others. So Jesus says, after he reminds them, hey, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This covenant relationship, that's what this is all about. When you've got that and you've received God's love first, you can love him back with all of your heart. And that word heart in, in the Hebrew language means your seat of your emotions. It means to love God with, with passion. It means to express your affection for God. And anybody that's ever been in any kind of love relationship, you know that there are expressions of affection that go along with it. And if you don't express affection, it just doesn't go well. I'm reminded of an old couple. I've been married a long time. And the wife went to the husband and said, hey, I think we need to go to marriage counseling. And the husband said, what do we need to go to marriage counseling for? And the wife said, well, you never tell me that you love me. And the husband looked back at her and said, hey, I told you I loved you when we got married. And if things ever change, I'll let you know. <laughs> like that, that just doesn't go well. That doesn't go well. When you have affection for a person, you express it through emotions. Hey, we are 48 days away from the kickoff of college football. All right, hold up. Look, some of y'all just expressed more emotion about that. That's my point. That is exactly my point. Jared's up here singing his heart out. And you're like, 
college football starting. Yeah, you know, like, wow. That's my point, because in, in just under seven weeks, in Sanford Stadium, I'm going to be among 92,000 people. Most of them are going to be dressed in red and black and whatever the school colors are of Austin P, which I think is a high school from, some, from Tennessee. They're coming in. And, and, and like people are going to go nuts like crazy when a teenager catches a piece of leather in the end zone. Or they will completely lose their mind if a teenager drops a piece of leather. Like, because when you're passionate and when you have passion for something, you show that through your emotions. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, if you love God, love him passionately, express your affection. And that's why we have worship songs the way we have worship songs to give you an environment and to give us an environment where we can express our affection to God through our emotions that God has given us, because that's what we do. To love the Lord your God with all of your mind. It's not emotionalism. So like our faith isn't built on emotions because otherwise like we'd lose faith some days when, when things are going bad or, or when things are great. Hey, we're, we've got emotions. That's emotionalism. To love the Lord your God with all of your mind is to, to be renewed in your thinking. It's to think and to stay focused on God's love for you and God's calling on your life. That's why it's so important for us to do things that engage our mind. That's why we challenge you to read scripture and we give you bookmarks and we challenge you to check it off and post it to social media so that, so that you'll stay focused right here because if you'll keep your mind focused right here, you'll see that, that you can love because God first loved you. God loves you with his emotion and God loves you with his mind. I mean, we sing a song where you're never, never not a part of God's attention. His affection is always on you. I mean, his mind and his heart, they're always set on you. And we're called to love God in the same way. We're called to love God with, with all of our soul. I love that word in Hebrew. It means like every bit of your life, like all of your life, the entirety of your life. And, and what's happening in cultural Christianity today is that we compartmentalize our faith. And we'll compartmentalize Sunday mornings and maybe um, Wednesday night for Connect Group and maybe some Surf Saturdays and we'll compartmentalize those things. And in those compartments, Jesus reigns. But then there are other compartments like our workspace or our play place, our Saturday nights or other spaces of our life like when the lights go out and everybody else is in bed but you're awake and you've got a screen in front of you or that conversation that you have with somebody that's not your spouse, and we'll compartmentalize that, and we'll say, Jesus, you can have some of these compartments, but to love the Lord your God with all of your soul is to continually be in this process where God's Spirit allows you to know where there's some compartments that haven't been surrendered to Him. And so through confession, you surrender that compartment to Him, and, and God takes over and fills that space with His Spirit. And you experience freedom and life and abundance in that. to love the Lord your God with every aspect of your life. And then to love the Lord with, with all of your strength. And that word in Hebrew is meodeka. Everybody say meodeka. It's a weird Hebrew word because it's actually a, a noun and a verb. And it's hard to translate into our language. So we translate it as strength. But if you were to literally translate it, the best way to literally translate it is muchness. Everybody say muchness. You just said a word that doesn't exist, okay? Like uh, students, in just a couple of weeks, because it is only a couple of weeks, if you try to write muchness on your English paper, you're going to have a big red circle around it, and your English teacher is going to say, not a word. It's because it's not a word, but it kind of captures the essence of what Mayodeca is. And, 
And essentially, the best way to describe it is that no matter what's happening in your life, circumstantially or situationally, you're going to devote yourself to trust in that moment, in that day, in that season, in that circumstance, in that situation, to continue to love God, to continue to trust in His sovereignty, to continue to trust in His compassion and His goodness and His kindness for you. I mean, one of the conversations that most of us on the pastoral team have at the church is a person comes to us and say, hey, I need to talk to you. I've got this circumstance or this situation going on and I'm struggling to keep my faith. And muchness says, hey, no matter what happens in your day, no matter what happens in your week, no matter what happens in your month, your year, this season, you're going to continue to love God. You're going to continue to trust in his sovereignty. You're going to continue to trust in his goodness and his kindness towards you. And that God sees the bigger picture of your life. And if you'll lean into him, and then he will make all things good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So then he does something that only Jesus does. He, through grace, makes things harder for us. Have you ever noticed that about Jesus? I mean, we like to think that grace makes things easier, but a lot of times it actually makes things harder. He says things like, hey, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you look lustfully at a woman, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. What's <laughs> Jesus? You've heard it said, do not commit murder, but I tell you, if you have hatred towards anyone, you've already committed murder in your heart. Ah, Jesus. And Jesus does this without being asked. He quotes the Shema from Deuteronomy. Then he pulls in Leviticus 17. Oh my gosh, Jesus. As if this weren't hard enough. You, You want us to love God with everything? And you want us to love other people as we love ourselves? Jesus knew something. He, he knew something beyond structural Hebrew language that allowed him rabbinically to tie things together. He knew that one of the best expressions of our love for God is our love for one another. Because if we believe that God is the creator of all things that we see and don't see, and especially human beings who we're told he breathed his spirit into to give life and to make us his image bearers, then when we see anyone else, we see God. If we see anyone else, they bear the image and the likeness of God. So how you treat one another is a reflection of how we view God. How we treat one another is a direct reflection of how much we trust God's love for us. And, and, and this, man, this quote from Leviticus, it's so like intricate and detailed. I wish we had time to just break down all of the like nuggets that are in here. But two just really important is that notice the frame of reference is how you love yourself. Like love others as you love yourself. Like if you don't love yourself, there is no way for you to actually adequately love other people. And the only way for you to love yourself is to understand that God is your creator. He created you in his image and his likeness. If you were the only human being on the face of earth, he would have sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. When you receive that by faith, trusting him as Lord and Savior, you not only get the forgiveness of your sins and this promise of eternal life, you are adopted into the family of God as an adopted son or an adopted daughter, and that you are co-heir of eternity with Christ. 
out of that then, you can love other people. But what's really powerful, and I, and I think I know why our modern translators of the Bible translate it, love others as you love yourself, instead of probably a better, more accurate translation, which would be love others who are just like you. If you were to take the Hebrew and you were to go back to Leviticus, love others who are just like you. In our kind of wicked and twisted and sinful humanity, we could translate it as people that look just like us or people that dress just like us or people that act just like us. When in reality, that Hebrew phrase, love others who are just like you, means love others because whether you know it or not or see it or not, they are just like you, created in the image and the likeness of God. And we close with what Jesus says to this guy who is this expert in the law but somehow missed it or had maybe thought he had graduated beyond it to some higher level of theology and some higher level of practice of faith, but says, hey, what's the most important? Jesus tells him, and then he tells Jesus that he's right. It's telling God that he's right. That was a pretty funny moment. And Jesus looks at him and he says, hey, you're not far from the kingdom. You're not far from the kingdom. He didn't say you're in the kingdom. He said you're not far from the kingdom. Because remember, Shema, it means to hear and what? Obey. It's not just enough to know it. You got to show it. It's not just enough to have it memorized. We got to do it. When we've received the love of God that's available free for all of us, despite our history of sin. And we love God, we love others the way that we love ourselves. And when we do, we are operating right in the middle of God's kingdom. Just like people who two weeks ago served over at our Flowery Branch campus on July the 7th for all the people that were going to Sterling-on-Lake through what we call servant evangelism, where they were just loving anybody that came to that campus and using that parking lot as either a place to carpool over to Sterling-on-the-Lake for fireworks show or stay in there to watch fireworks. And we just loved on them. Why? Because God loves them. Just like the people that are in our church who yesterday went up to Commerce to serve with iServe Ministries, who had over 30,000 pounds of food, fed over 1,200 uh, people, and we'll feed them for over a week, usually two weeks. Why? Because... They're just like us, but they need food. This is what it looks like when you're in the kingdom, not far from it. So let's be people who, because God has invited us into his kingdom, live in the kingdom instead of being not too far from it. Let faith arise. In spite of what I've seen, Lord, I believe. But help my unbelief, I choose to trust you. No matter what I feel, let faith arise. Yes. Let faith arise. For my champion's not dead, he is alive.
Super natural love to break. 